This is the No Stroke Podcast with your co-hosts, David Dancero and Michael Garrow, helping you to support and thrive in life after stroke. Their podcast is designed for educational and community support purposes only and should not replace medical treatment and guidance of your own health professional team. Welcome to episode 32 of the No Trope Podcast. My name is Dave Dancer. I'm here with my co-host, Michael Garrow. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, David. Um, thanks for, uh, you know, we're sitting here on the Monday of Labor Day weekend. I know it's been a busy week for you. Do you want to yeah. give the listeners a bit of a, a feel of kind of what's been going on? It's a, bit, a big transition in David's life this past big, week. Big transition. I'm still digesting the uh, transition of Two of my two of my three children going off to college at the same time. So two of my boys got settled into my alma mater. If you're watching the Zoom, I don't know. I don't, Mike. I don't even know if I can put this. Looking at my face here, not sure if I can put this on the YouTube version. But we're recording the audio because we had a great episode. But yeah, big adjustment. Um, getting you know over the holiday weekend here, getting two two. Uh, young, fine young men, one being our podcast producer, the senior of the two, right? He's going in as a junior and I got a freshman going in, but getting them settled in and running back and forth and finding out all those last minute things on the list we didn't get. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to be a little different here in the uh, dance row home, but it's all good. They're going to, they're ready to get out and explore this, this big world of ours. So yeah. How about, how about for you, Mike? That's exciting. That's exciting. You know, the big send off. Um, you've, you've prepped them well, David, I have no doubt, you know, they're, they're going to be fine young men and ready to, ready to experience University of Rhode Island college life. Yeah. You know? So I thank, thank you, Michael, as well. And, uh, we do, you do what you can and you get them ready. And, and that's also my excuse why I don't have any in the news, uh, prep because I've been, that's my news. So I put it on your shoulder. So you. take it I away. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, we, in, in David's absence of in the news, you know, I I had to do do some homework myself. But, you know, we've been talking a lot about Australia the past couple of weeks and the innovation and, and the, the care pathways that, you know, Australia has really been able to drive from a reach, research perspective. Um, and, it, and it's always been a country I've kind of had my eye on. And I think, you know, we've looked a lot, a lot, you know, from the models and, you know, some of the folks, you know, doing cool things out of, out of Australia. So one thing that popped up um, this week was a, it was a project funded through a design, International Union of Architects, right? And what they're putting out is a challenge for students this year for student all architects all across the globe um, to it's called the next generation of stroke rehabilitation centers. So what they're trying to do is you know get get concepts for what a kind of smaller type uh, building, maybe like 30 stroke survivors, um, like how to ideally design this um, to you know, based on the evidence coming out of stroke, based on, you know, new technology, um, you know, really kind of come together. And they've partnered with, it's called the Foley, um, not, or sorry, Novel Redesign Group. And they're out of Australia as well. It's like a healthcare redesign and innovation project funded through the University of Melbourne. Um, and 
And really, it's a group of like neuro neuroscientists, um, design architects, researchers that are coming together to try to drive this project forward and and possibly like have an evidence based design for how stroke centers should be you know, created and managed. Um, so it again, I think that would be something really cool to kind of have a, a sole episode on. Um, I don't know if we have any architects listening to us, but if you have any architects in the family, you know, anyone that might be interested in this, um, you know, we could list the notes or we'll list the contact info in, in the show notes here. But yeah, definitely a, a cool, cool kind of uh, concept of, you know, trying to get some students in to, to really think how we could improve you know, how stroke care is managed and, and how that in-person rehab design is. Thanks. That sounds really interesting. Let's let's get that. And I'd like to to get since I missed it quite a bit this last week. I'd like to get get that uh, definitely uh, on our list for in the in the show notes. So anything else? Or I know we had a long we had a great interview earlier uh, with our guest. You want to do that intro? Is there anything else I missed in the news? Um, no, I think that's. I mean, there there are some other things that are that were floating around, but um, you know. I think that for me is is really something that stuck out. Um, you know, typical research, uh, some other typical research of like you know different diets and sleep recommendation things like that for stroke that we always see. But I again, I think that one was really interesting, and and again, just shows you know what Australia is, is pushing for um, in terms of next generation stroke rehab. So, um, you know, we do hope, you know, we could get a, a guest on to talk through that program and some of the other innovation happening in Australia. Um, but yeah, let, let's jump into this one. Um, so today's guest is Professor Nick Ward. He is a consultant neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery and also professor of clinical neurology and neuro rehab at Queen Square Institute of Neurology in London. So his special clinical interest is in stroke uh, neuro rehab, focusing particularly on the recovery of the arm and hand function. He's designed, he's the, the founder of the Neuro Rehab Online NROL project. He's the co-founder of the UCLP Center for Neuro Rehab. He's a co-editor of the Oxford Textbook of Neuro Rehabilitation, an associate editor of the journals Neuro Rehab and Neural Repair and Journal of Neurology. So needless to say, this is a busy man. Um, he is a, one of the most probably covenant, like, in terms of research and the papers he's, he's done and you know driving forward um, in a research, not only in in the UK, but at a global level, you know, he's partnered with, again, a lot of folks over in Australia um, and, and leading the way. And, you know, we'll let him talk to it more of why he kind of focus in on the upper arm. Um, but again, it really, really well researched man, really well, you know, respected in, in the stroke community. So it was, a, it was an honor to have him on. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, like you said, David, it was a long, long interview. So I think, you know, let's, let's just jump into this. It was, you know, something that we've had on, on top for a little while to try to get him in. So I'm glad we were able to make it work. Um, I hope everybody enjoys this one. We'll be back in about a week. We have our next guest. We're going to be recording with a 
the chief medical officer of Hyperfine. So that was a company that that we discussed there um, a couple of times over the past month or so that were um, in the news. So yeah, let's jump into this. Um, again, if you do like this episode, please subscribe, share with your friends. And if you have anybody in mind that you think would be interesting for us to interview, you know, please, please reach out and, and we'll try to our best to get them on. So with that, here is Professor Nick Ward. And I hope you all enjoy. Hi, welcome to the No Stroke Podcast, Nick. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, you know, as David and I were, were doing some research uh, on your your your, your past, the, your involvement within the stroke community, um, and and really the the different avenues you've been in. You know, there's there's a few different places we could start here, but. You know, just for our listeners, you know, we gave a brief intro, um, but can you tell us a little bit about your career and kind of what got you to the point now with uh, University College London? So, yeah, so thanks. So I'm a, uh, I'm a neurologist, my background, um, which is kind of interesting because neurologists are often not very interested in rehabilitation. So I'm an unusual neurologist mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, I did my training at uh, Queen Square, like a lot of neurologists in, uh, in London. Uh, in the UK. Um, and when it came to research, because as a training neurologist, you always end up having to do research. I did, uh, I worked with Richard Fokoviak at the Functional Imaging Lab, which is just across the square from me now. And um, I was interested, the, the thing that motivates me is still the thing that motivates me now, um, is, you know, stroke, something like stroke, or, you know, even any kind of focal brain injury leads to damage in the brain, essentially leads to a hole. That hole doesn't fill in and yet people can recover so how does that happen if it always felt like we should and it still feels like we should know more about that because that should hold the keys to being better at treating people so the thing that i thought back then was that was going to hold the keys was functional brain imaging so i so the kind of early part of my my certainly my research career was in um fmri uh looking at how uh, activation patterns in the brain changed uh, as people recovered after uh, after they'd had stroke. You know, and at um, at some point, I thought, well, this isn't this isn't going to get me closer to knowing how to treat people better. And you know, my kind of training as a doctor kind of kicked in, and I thought, well, I'm not doing any treating of people. I was also kind of aware that I was, I'd kind of moved over into this sort of rehab world as a neurologist, and I didn't really have any experience in rehab. So I had to kind of, you know, as a consultant neurologist, I had to kind of get myself trained in rehab. And so I started to do uh, MDT clinics with, um, with therapists uh, here at Queen Square. Um, and I basically just, I'm, I'm a good listener. So I listened to them and I learned from them. And, and at some point, and I can't quite identify where it was, uh, but uh, two colleagues of mine, so Kate Kelly, who's a consultant occupational therapist, and Fran Brando, who's a consultant physiotherapist, we realized what we were getting referrals for upper limb, and because upper limb, arm and hand is the thing that I'm interested in, because it related to my research, we were getting referrals. And so we'd see people in clinic to give advice about what to do about the upper limb, but you very quickly get frustrated because you don't have a treatment, you have a thing. And that's what led us to set up the, the Queen Square Upper Limb Rehab Program, which has been going for about eight or nine years now. So, um, so that's the kind of second part of my 
my career and I'm kind of waiting to see what the last part uh, has in store but I've kind of shifted away from you know doing that kind of functional brain imaging to running a, an, an NHS clinical service but thinking of it very much as an academic service where that is a place that we should be able to learn lots about recovery of the arm and the hand. Fascinating and <laughs> so so we have a a strong kind of uh i would call it a an irish view listenership right um and you know some folks from the uk but a, a lot of our listeners are are sitting here in in the us can you briefly um could it give us a difference of you know description of the nhs right and and kind of how that system is set up. I, I and i say brief um you know, that it might not be the, the easiest thing to do briefly but just for our listeners kind of understand the way that the nhs is, is structured well i think that's a tough question i mean if you i mean essentially the, the key thing is the nhs is free and that has that has consequences right. good and bad you know underfunding but uh you know at, at the other at the other end um you know, you can get some amazing and incredible services uh, for free. You know, the way it works for us in our program um, is we refer patients in from the community. So they have to get referred in by their general practitioner, their family doctor, or by some other specialist team. And then we assess them in a clinic. And then, you know, if we think we can help them on the program, we'll bring them into the program. If we think we can help them in other ways, we'll We'll do we'll do that in other ways but it's all yeah it's all set up there's no there's no cost to the patient so we so that i guess the um the reason that's important is because we're not having to justify ourselves to uh insurance companies um although you know we do think it's very important that we justify the existence of this service and that's why we have a lot of outcome measures and make sure we try and publish our outcome measures in terms right. of the kind of pathway for stroke i don't i'm not sure that it's I'm not sure that it's hugely different across um, uh, across countries. I mean, what most countries are quite good at is the is the hyperacute and the acute end, right? So we're good at getting people into stroke units. We're good at deciding whether they need thrombolysis or thrombectomy. Uh, we're good at keeping them alive. And then, you know, I, I was reading a, a, a paper from Australia, which again used the phrase that you hear all the time: people feel like they've just fallen off the edge of a cliff. Uh, and feel abandoned at the moment that they've left hospital because even though there are wonderful community teams, community rehabilitation teams, there's just not enough of them. They're just completely under-resourced. And as a result, rehabilit post-stroke rehabilitation is, um, is delivered on the basis of available resources rather than on what the kind, what that person needs, what, you know, what their kind of biological requirements are, in fact. You know, we, do, we just don't, you know, so, and as a result, we're completely underdosing patients. But I think that's, I think that's true everywhere. You know, we just don't give enough rehab to know what is possible. And I, and I don't, I don't see how we can design a rational service unless we, we have that information, which we currently don't have. Yeah. Um, Dr. Wood, that, that's interesting. The, the amount of resources certainly in the different phases of uh, recovery and areas you have to focus on. Um, what, what drew you, I'm curious, what drew you to the upper limb and, and how you got involved in that versus looking at gait or looking at other areas of need for a stroke survivor? Uh, I guess it's relatively practical reasons. You know, I was kind of, you know, as I said, I thought that 
I thought the key to understanding recovery at that time was going to be looking in the brain and how the brain functions. It's much easier to do that uh, in with fMRI with the upper limb than it is with gait with with legs. So uh, you know there was a history of using uh, of um, experiments looking at uh, uh, the upper limb. So I was interested in the motor system, and you know uh, the, the upper limb seemed uh, easier to study in fMRI. But it, you know, but it turns out it's pretty complicated. So it's fa fairly pragmatic, to be honest. If opportunities had come along to study, you know, language, for example, like my colleague Alex Leff, you know, maybe I would have gone down that path. Language always seemed really too complicated for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I think you have a unique stance on a word that we we really dislike, but you you hear commonly used across you know, the stroke community. It's this word plateau, right? Um, you know, we we just had a guest on a couple of weeks ago from from Sabo Health. I'm not sure if you've you're familiar with their technology, but it, you know, a rehab device for the upper arm. Uh -huh. um, and, and they specifically target plateau saying, you know, this is, this will happen, right? But there's ways to try to get yourself around that. So what's your stance? And, you know, we kind of, with that, the research that you guys are, are putting out through the, through the lab, like, how are you trying to treat plateau? If you believe in it? Sure, but I, so I think we first of all have to kind of reframe what the what you know what saying there is a recovery plateau means. So what you're saying to people, if you if you use that phrase, what you're saying is um, beyond about six months post stroke, it is no longer possible for there to be any clinical improvement. Full stop. In any domain, movement, upper limb, gait, cognition, language. Uh, and that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's kind of deeply uh, upsetting and kind of insulting to many stroke survivors. You know that you can continue to improve way beyond that. So why have we cut in it? But, but actually, if you look at, look at data, so the, this idea of the plateau has come from those recovery curves, right? So they go up and then around about six months, they kind of flatten off. And actually, if you follow people up for longer, if you follow people up for five years, they start to go down. So there is a study, a European study that, shows us that by about five years post-stroke, people are back to where they were two months post-stroke. So the question is always, is that a biological inevitability or is there something that we can do about that? So that's always the challenge. So I think the key th thing, and again, I start to emphasize this in, in, in talks that I do, is that this idea about the plateau, if we're gonna talk about it, we're really only talking about the level of impairment. So if you think about the ICF, about all the possibilities, you know, is it, do we think that beyond six months, it is no longer possible to help somebody at the level of participation through some kind of, you know, uh, aid or, you know, mobility scooter? That makes no sense at all. You can always help people at the level of participation. Can you help people at the level of activity? Well, you probably can. You can probably always help people at the level of activity indefinitely. Okay. So, it's, so the, the idea of a plateau is like immediately banished. So, if we're then talking about impairment, then we can then we can cut across domains and go, okay, well, what about, so we've got, let's think motor, language, cognition. So the debate is really mostly in the motor domain and, and mostly at the level of impairment. The, the, the language people don't seem to have this problem. They, you know, they're, they're pretty happy with the idea that improvement in 
in uh, aphasia, in, in comprehension, but particularly in expression, can continue for years <coughs> after, after stroke. And in cognition, we probably just don't have enough data, to be honest, but you know, people will say that cognition is something that improves slower uh, than the other domains and for longer, but that's probably because we just don't treat it or even recognize it in many cases. So just, just picking it apart, the plateau idea is really a motor impairment issue, but it has been applied to the whole of stroke and stroke services seem to have been designed entirely on the basis of the plateau. It's like, it's an excuse for withdrawing, it's a justification for withdrawing treatment for six uh, beyond six months. Well, the plateau says that there won't be any improvement, therefore why will we treat you? It doesn't make any sense. You just you have to think about it very long for it to not make any sense. <clears throat> so then if you're talking about the motor system and you're talking about impairment, uh, then it becomes more interesting, right? So um, I would say that there are data now that say you can take chronic stroke patients and that they can change in the Fugelmeyer. So the Fugelmeyer assessment is supposed to be a measure of impairment, okay? So in the upper limb program, you know, we change people at the level of Fugelmeyer. The mean or the median time post-stroke is 21 months in our, in our program. You look at the studies from people like uh, um, Janice Daly, uh, you know, delivering 300 hours of some form of upper limb treatment to chronic stroke patients. They get big, similar big changes. So if the Fugelmeyer is a measure of impairment, then yes, the, you know, impairment can be changed in the chronic phase. Now, now we're kind of really getting to the kind of scientific nitty gritty. Now, some people might then say, well, maybe the Fugelmeyer isn't really a true measure of impairment. And actually what you really need to be looking at is motor control. But you know, see how far away we've already come from the original idea of the plateau. We're now asking the question, is it possible for motor control to improve in the chronic state? And the, you know, so there are some studies that look at kinematics to assess motor control. So in other words, you're getting people to do a motor task that you can't cheat at. So if you improve at that task, it implies that there is some improvement in your ability to control your movements. You're not just cheating, you're not just doing trunk leaning or you're not just getting stronger, for example. Um, that that does happen, but if you follow people up very early, it seems to stop at about eight to 12 weeks. But nobody's ever looked at or given high enough doses of treatment to people uh, in the chronic phase. So we are collecting those data now in our upper limb patients going through the program. We're collecting kinematic data. And if we show um, that chronic stroke patients with a big enough dose of high quality, high intensity rehab can be changed at the level of motor control, then I think that just blows the doors off the whole plateau thing. That would be my take on it briefly. Can you can you dive a little deeper into the specific design of your program and the dosing? Sure. So um, so I'll, I'll kind of preface it by saying that the design of our program works for us at Queen Square in central London. You know, it may be that in the Australian outback or you know somewhere else, you have a different model. Absolutely happy with that idea. So, um, well, when we first started it, so we kind of just sort of snuck it under the radar. And uh, Kate and Fran, who I mentioned before, <clears throat> who I still uh, run this program with, 
they, they basically had to start treating patients on top of their normal jobs. So that was, you know, heroic work from them. And we started off having this idea that we would have two different programs. We'd have a two-week program and a four-week program and very quickly went, okay, this isn't going to work. So pragmatically, uh, you know, we said, okay, three weeks. It's a bit like where does 45 minutes uh, uh, for a session come from? It's probably because an hour is too long and half an hour is not long enough. So we kind of, we, we, we tried three weeks and it enabled us to write a business case in a way that was understandable and, you know, and get it, uh, and get it uh, funded that way. And it felt about right. So we see people in clinic, if we think that they're going to benefit from high dose, high intensity treatment training, which involves physiotherapy and occupational therapy, we'll bring them into the program three weeks five days a week timetabled for six hours a day now that doesn't mean that they get six hours of active time on task when we did um we had a student do some observations about 100 hours of um of uh, patient sessions and worked out that probably about 50 percent of that time was active time on task which actually i was kind of horrified at, at first i thought it wasn't enough but actually if you think about it it's about right so that's actually doing something with the upper limb in a it, 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 it may be a functional task, it may not be a functional task, it doesn't matter, but they were moving the upper limb. And then, you know, the rest of the 50% is taken up with between session rests, within session rests, uh, working on gates, doing some cardiovascular, maybe sensory training, education. So there's lots of other things that, that go on. Um, so they work, uh, so they work with a physio and, and with an OT, and then we have a rehab assistant. The uh, the staff to patient ratio is very good. It's one to one. Um, and when they get, uh, and you know, it's very, very much based on what their individual goals are. But the philosophy is um, essentially understanding what the problem is with that person's arm. And we always say, why does that person's arm not work? So that's essentially diagnostics. That's the first key thing that, that is really important. Why does that arm not work? Secondly, individualized goals. Thirdly, loads and loads and loads of practice. Fourth, promoting self-efficacy, giving patients the understanding, the tools, the knowledge, the skills, the, the, um, the hope that they can continue to uh, take this on and do well when they go home. So then we see them at six weeks to follow them up, really to make sure that they haven't run into any problems with, you know, practical things. Uh, and then we do a final follow up at six months. We'd love to follow them up for longer, but, you know, this is this is an NHS service. And at each of the time points, so admission discharge, six weeks, six months, we do a whole battery of outcome measures, which culturally was quite a difficult thing for me to impose on the team because it's not it's not usual to do quite so many outcome scores, but, you know, we do Fugelmeyer, we do ARAP, we do the KE, we do uh, Armour A, Armour B, we do, you know, stroke impact scale, we do fatigue scores, we've got sensory scores, you know, but it was really important from my point of view, you know, I felt it's such a privilege for us to be able to run this programme at a place like Queen Square that we really, you know, our, our obligation was to collect data and where possible publish data so that we can try and get a toe in the door for everybody else to do to do something similar so you know if somebody said well you know we're not going to run it that way we're going to spread you know maybe we do the same number of hours but we're going to spread it over three months great that would be absolutely fine just measure it measure stuff see whether it works when covid came along 
the team were amazing. They just created a completely online version of our upper limb program, never been done before. Made it four weeks. So it's four weeks, 80 hours, sessions like this. You know, I thought, how do you do that? But again, we made sure we measured stuff. So people actually had to come in on day, I think they came in on day three because the therapist said, we're not gonna do this without actually being able to assess what the problem is. I need to know whether they've got a painful shoulder when I move, I need to know what the tone feels like there in order to be able to work with somebody in their own kitchen. But it allowed us to do all those quantitative outcome measures as well. And um, I ha although I haven't done all of the analysis, you know, people do improve, probably not quite as much as the face-to-face, -face, but you know, but they do, they do improve. So, you know, there are all kinds of ways that you can, you can do this. You know, the bottom line is we just don't give a big enough dose, you know, lots, and, it's not even though you know we talk about intensity and i've had this discussion recently with people on the national clinical guidelines people get mixed up between dose and intensity and it's not you know we don't have any direct evidence that intensity is the key thing but there's lots of evidence that dose is important just doing more is is important lots of evidence but it doesn't be finding it very difficult to get that into international clinical guidelines i don't know what it's like in other countries so that's what the program is. That works for Queen Square. Key thing is, uh, as I said, the key ingredients for me are the diagnostics, understanding why the arm doesn't work, because that allows you to clinically reason. I mean, this is what this is what therapists do anyway. Okay, but it's kind of quantifying it. Um, individualized goals, mass practice, self-efficacy. That, that's what we think the active ingredients of our program are, and that's why when they go home and we measure them at six weeks and six months, they don't just go down. Like lots of people told us they would. They said, why, I don't, why are you setting this program up? You'll improve them in three weeks and then they'll just go back to where they were. Well, they don't. And, and probably the reason that they don't is because the commonest thing that people said to us when they were discharged or at the end of the three weeks was, oh, oh, I get it now. I understand, I know what I'm supposed to do. And I think that's why they maintain. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, the the more we talk to, to folks in this space, you know, that dose is so important. Right. And I, and I think it goes back, you know, you look at the way stroke rehabs reimbursed, it's reimbursed by, by session. Right. So we're not actually saying you need this many reps. Mm. It's more so you're getting this X amount of sessions. Um, we always have a thing that, that we say, you know, from, from stroke survivors point of view, like you need to train like an athlete. Right. And yeah. it's, yeah. You know, that 10,000 reps, you know, it's continuous, you know, development and, you know, and it's a, it's a lifelong thing. Um, I, I'd love to kind of dive more into this rehab in the home kind of point of, of kind of where you guys are currently, because it seems like, you know, you've developed this great program, you know, it's an intensive three week period that they're getting this treatment and then you're having this follow up where in your perspective, like, where are you seeing the biggest drop off? Is it is it like motivation? Is it n keeping up like new types of of exercises to do? Um, like where is that lacking? Because you you see these companies that are coming out like Grip Able. I know they're they're a UK company that are you know, building a device, um, and you know companies like Sabo as well. Um, but what's what's that missing link that you think is still having folks once they go home? they're just falling again they feel like they're falling off that cliff you know is there that next step sure well if you listen to um you know what i the comment that a lot of patients make when they leave the program 
that they get it now they know what to do i mean that tells you that for many people and this is you know and i hear this in clinic all the time when we're assessing people who come in who are referred into by community teams they don't know what it is they're supposed to be doing they're just they're not sure so there's uncertainty there's uncertainty about what they ought to be doing and and they're trying you know their best and you see these people who are have set up gyms in their garage and they're doing strength training you know unfortunately they're usually strengthening the muscles that are not weak rather than the ones because they're you know they're just trying so hard um they don't quite know what it is that they're supposed to be doing but we also have a tremendous amount of uncertainty about what people's potential is right and patients have uns they don't know what to expect they don't know how far they can go and we don't have the tools yet to do that i mean i think it's not i mean it's kind of very tangentially related to your question which I'll, I'll come back to but i think having much better prognostics like where should this person be at this point in their recovery like oh it looks like they've dropped off why is that oh because they're not doing anything because they don't believe it's going to work okay let's we need to go into that or maybe they've you know we see so many people in clinic now who've got a frozen shoulder it seems to, I don't know why it's increasing. I tweeted this out the other day and I was hoping people could tell me why, because they're not, they don't seem to be getting treated. But, you know, people who've got nice finger movement, but they've got a frozen shoulder and being told, well, you've had a stroke. What do you expect? Those people have got fantastic potential to get really good working hands and arms back because they've already got finger movement back, but they can't. So um, showing people what it is that they need to do uh, avoiding complications, um, you know, is all is really important. But your question was more related to the role of technology, I think. So how can we use technology in the home to get people doing more stuff? So uh, that's, a t I mean, that's a tough market, right? I mean, these people are not going into this market to become billionaires, are they? I don't think so. Good, good on them. That's the first thing. And I think the first, the, the key thing that we have to remember when we're looking at you know these devices is rehabilitation is a complex intervention so what do i mean by that i don't mean it's complicated and it's you know impossible to describe and it's mysterious i mean it's complex and it has multiple components and they interact with one another so we've talked a lot about what some of those components are you know just you know even simply you know diagnostics individualized goals mass practice uh, self-efficacy so devices that get you to do stuff with a kind of attached to a game on a uh, on a, a tablet or on a screen are fine we just have to remember that isn't rehab so devices like that and the same goes for robotics are fine but they are they are things that are targeting impairment so we need to think about those as these are things that could be incorporated into an overall program when you want to target a specific impairment and then if you think about them like that they're fine it's just when people start doing clinical trials of device versus physio it doesn't make any sense and it's, it's not what rehab programs are so i think they're i think they're all i mean people generally come in and say that they've got one of these things and they generally like them i mean occasionally they don't they don't like them but it's probably because there's a mismatch between what that person needs to be working on and what that device is good for whether it's fingers or whether it's for reaching or whether it's pronation supination or whatever so we 
in our field need to be much better at matching up devices, whether it's simple home-based things or it's the kind of more complex things that we see in, uh, in, in rehab units, understanding what it is that we're trying to do with those. What is, how do you match up the patient and the thing that you want to work on with the device? And we're just not very good at that. And the companies know that too. Um, you know, if you, you know, for example, and it took us a long time, so we do have some devices, but it might be, you know, you, you're trying to do something with somebody in the, in, in the kitchen and, you know, they've got a particular weakness in reaching. You go, okay, we need to work on that impairment. Let's get you into that device. You're going to do reps in that. We need to strengthen. We need to get some better control there. Then we'll take you back into the kitchen. But you have, we have to be able to understand where those devices fit into the overall package of rehab. And that's why it kind of infuriates me when I see clinical trials of device versus therapist. It just, it's not an interesting question and it doesn't help us build, you know, more, um, comprehensive services totally agree yeah i think it goes it it'll you know it's it'll never replace it it could only support and kind of up that dose but sorry sorry for cutting in david go ahead no i just uh it's really well said the 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 tech at the right time and that's you know i've always explained to my patients too is it high tech you need right now or high touch do you need that education because you know, the more experts like yourself, Nick, that we have come on, the more refreshing it is. And the message that is that that I think is so important is that we talk around neuroplasticity, the 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 opportunity for the brain to to stop learning. That does not stop. It's just, yeah. you know, I I'm 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 motivated by that stat that you said early on in our discussion about why is it that after five months folks fall back to baseline? Is it lack of support, service, motivation. It's a complex mix or a recipe that we, like folks like yourself that are looking and, and looking at measuring the outcomes, even with your, I'm impressed that even with your online neuro recovery program that you pivoted to but during the pandemic, I imagine it's what maybe jump-started it, um, that you're, you mentioned that you're bringing folks back in so they are still getting um, getting those measurable touch points because it's it is motivating for the patient to actually know even if it's subtle changes are those changes actually still happening yeah well as long as it's changing true <laughs> no, but, that is, but that is the thing you know there are some schools that we use i mean the ARAT in particular with people with quite you know whose hands are not you know very difficult to use it's, a, it's really it's, it's tough and we do have people who kind of refuse to do the outcomes because they find it too upsetting at the end because they feel like they went and changed. Um, yeah, that that's a, that's actually a perfect example right there because then it, maybe there is a new tool at that point that you keep trying, kind of like as a coach going back to Mike's theme around the you know the the sport and the performance side. Like you have maybe it's a nudge in a little subtle different direction and just to. To you know, until you find out maybe what might work. Sure, sure, for that person, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, one one thing that I think has certainly grown through the pandemic, like in light of the pandemic, I suppose, is is online education and support, right? And that's something you guys leaned into outside of the physical rehab itself um, is a partnership with same you 
um, and Emilia, Emilia Clark. Um, so I know that's, you know, it's a foundation that's grown quite rapidly over the last, you know, couple of years since, since it's begun in the UK. And, you know, I think my following of the Stroke Association, actually, you know, from the, the UK perspective, like there's, there's a lot of investment, there's a lot of support um, within those two foundations. But particularly with your work with Same You um, and the Neuro Rehab Online program. Mm. Can you speak more to that and, and kind of some of the success and in, in the groups that you guys are running there currently? So yeah, so we've, um, we've, we've been in contact with uh, Same You for about three years now, obviously interrupted by uh, the pandemic. And our conversations are really around how we can, you know, do something transformational in the field of uh, neuro recovery for people with acquired brain injury, bit stroke or traumatic brain injury across domains, you know, movement, language, cognition, emotional support. Uh, um, so that's a big, you know, that's a big undertaking, but it's something that, you know, that really needs to be done. When, um, when the pandemic came along, um, so Jenny Clark, who's CEO of Same U, said to me we want to do something um covid related but we want we don't you know we want it to be in the field of rehab and we think we can raise some money so um obviously uh, jenny and amelia did raise some money and so i had to think of something to do with it <laughs> so so i struggled for a couple of days but you know there's some amazing people um around here uh at queen square and this idea of tele-rehab was kind of there because we realized very quickly uh, that people with stroke were probably not gonna, we didn't realize that not so many of them would go to hospital, but we knew that people would not be in hospital as long. They would get discharged quickly. Um, they would not be getting as much inpatient rehab as they normally get. And even though I'm always you know, saying that people get hardly any community rehab, they were gonna get even less just because it wasn't possible for the community team. So there's gonna be a whole cohort of people experiencing stroke during that time who were gonna get shortchanged. It's like, well, what can we do? How can we, how can we help those people? And so my first kind of first brainwave I had was when I was talking to a PhD student of mine called Ben Beer, who is a, um, amazing physiotherapist and as I was talking to him I realized that his PhD program was going to have to stop for about six months and I thought well why don't I get Ben involved in doing tele-rehab and then my second brainwave was when about a minute later I bumped into Catherine Dugan who is an amazing uh, clinical neuropsychologist who works here at Queen Square and thought she would be a great partner for Ben and so we basically who was also doing a research project at the time so we seconded them out of their research projects for six months with the funding that uh, Jenny and Amelia uh, raised and we set up Enroll and it was um, I mean it was an amazing time because if I mean I think we're all kind of forgetting what what that time was like it was like we were on a war footing you know London was empty but I was coming in here we were turning research labs into tv studios you know we set up these big television screens and we had to work out we had to get can connect with the community team to say refer patients to us and then we're gonna we'll set up some groups um and we're because i had a physio and a clinical neuropsychologist we were quite ambitious so we did groups for gait and balance 
we did groups for upper limb, we did uh, cognitive rehab, we got speech and language therapists over from the unit to run some sessions for aphasia, uh, we had fatigue management groups, and Catherine ran a, a carer's cafe. And they also had me and uh, Alex Leff, who's also a consultant neurologist here at Queen Square, who works uh, on the ICAP um, service, which is basically doing, the, doing for aphasia what we do for upper limb, an intensive three-week aphasia program. She would have us do meet the doctor sessions where we would you know, talk to people. The idea there was we wanted people to get all their questions about what, what am I supposed to be on this drug? What does this drug do? I've got this symptom in my leg. We wanted to get us out of the way so that when they were in sessions with Ben or Catherine or whoever, that wouldn't, it wouldn't come up. The other thing that we had to do was we thought, well, this is going to be a disaster if people keep dropping off the call or they can't, you know, they don't know how to use the internet or the Wi-Fi doesn't work. So um, this amazing guy called Pedro Kurt came and volunteered to work with us and he ran the, the IT side of things. So he would call up patients before sessions and make sure that they could get online and he would watch the, each of the sessions. And if somebody dropped off, then Ben or Catherine didn't have to stop the session. He would then phone them up and say, what's happened and go, it's okay. George has not fallen off his chair. It's just as, you know, somebody's arrived at the door and he's, or, or whatever. And, um, and yeah, we ran it that way. So uh, yeah, th so those, those three in particular ran themselves into the ground for it. <laughs> but again, the ethos was, uh, not just let's create a whole neuro rehab service online, but let's measure it, let's assess it. You know, it's always, if you're going to get, again, the privilege of being able to do something like this, you have to measure it. Otherwise, you know, what's the point? So um, we weren't able to bring people in to do a whole range of different outcome measures. Some of the services did kind of uh, domain specific uh, measures but overall you know our hypothesis was that if we connect with people in this way the thing that we'll have an effect on will be self-efficacy so uh, our primary outcome measure there was the stroke self-efficacy questionnaire and uh, and self yeah self-efficacy did improve in those patients and that's that's what we published the other thing the other really good thing that we did was to write down what the program is so, uh, you know, people who work in the research field will know this, that when you have an intervention, there is a, um, a way of describing that intervention using the tidier guidelines, so that if you gave those guidelines to some other service, to some other unit, and they followed exactly what's written down, then they would be doing the same thing. So we wrote down the tidier guidelines of what the whole of the Enroll program was and published those in JNNP so that anybody can download them, have a look at them, compare what they're doing to what, to what we're doing. I mean, they may disagree with what we did, that's absolutely fine, but it's there, so it's not mysterious what we did. So I think that was also a really valuable thing. So yeah. It's amazing. Is that, is that still being funded? Are you guys, is that still, is that program still running? Or? Yeah, so, so phase yeah. two of that was, you know, for something like this, you, you start to think, okay, we need to get this sort of thing in front of commissioners in the NHS. So they will go, okay, we're going to pay for this to be part of the NHS. So it was going to be very difficult for us to do that down here uh, in London. So um, I know a wonderful academic physiotherapist up at the University of Central Lancashire called Louise Connell, and I contacted her um, and they took on Enrol from London and they shifted up to East Lancashire. 
and again same you really you know pull through for them and, and have raised quite a bit of money to allow them to continue to do that because they're again they're doing more outcome scores than we did testing the efficacy of this intervention testing the feasibility of it and they're doing it in the context of a real nhs service and under the noses of the commissioners so that you know they may get some traction with commissioners and and people can see how it might be useful in a future model of community-based you know post-discharge stroke rehabilitation because you can see how you could end up with some kind of really nice hybrid model of community teams seeing people but then also being able to access people in their own homes when it when it suits them more um and that that would be great so that's the kind of thing that they're working on louise is very you know she's particularly interested in the difficulties that you have in taking an intervention even when you've demonstrated efficacy and how you translate it into real clinical practices so that's incredibly valuable mm. work that she is continuing to do with to do with her colleagues up at university of central lancashire which is continuing to be funded by SAMU. that's brilliant um and and you know i know in my involvement in like the irish system for stroke there is this a program called the early supported discharge program is that Kind of, would you see this program kind of tied into something of that model or is it a little different? Yeah, I mean, early supported discharge is something that was studied about 25 years ago. So mm. the original papers were published. And the goal there was to say that if we give the same amount of rehab, whatever that is, in people's own, that they're getting in hospital, but we give it to people in their own homes, what effect will it have? And the hypothesis there was not about outcomes. It was not about recovery. It was about saving um, you know, time in hospital. It was saving bed days. And, and the, what, they, what they were interested in was to make sure it wasn't worse. So it wasn't worse, but people didn't do any better. But it had quite, you know, it had quite strict um, inclusion and exclusion criteria for what ESD is. So no, ESD runs throughout the whole of the UK or it's supposed to run throughout the whole of the UK, I couldn't give you the percentage of uh, regions in which it runs. Um, and I couldn't give you the percentage of regions in which it runs in the way that it was originally described, but that will be a lot less. So ESD became a byword for rehabilitation. It was a way of getting people out of hospital early. So actually the inpatient stays dropped and then ESD teams come in quite early and then they may people then may wait for a bit more community rehab you know but ESD is still you know completely underdosing people in terms of what they need it's not their fault it's just not enough of them but so that's that's right. not enroll is is trying to increase dose dosing yeah yeah okay nice uh, I know David you know where we usually try to end on a on our favorite question of the day um around the magic wand but david anything you know that that you want to touch on before we wrap things up here yeah i i'm really impressed by the the how you removed all the barriers i could i feel like i could talk to you more about your neuro online program alone just for it looks like you built a on the fly built a quite the peloton community and model around um, you know, supporting stroke survivors during that period. And I hope that continues to grow. And I'm going to look more at that, that model as well. Um, it was, I, um, red, it was partly because the red tape had gone because of COVID. Yeah. That's why we could just do stuff without really asking people. I, I, 
that's why it works. I hope it continues to work because I think there's a nice hybrid model there that we're, we're still on tap. So I think because we are coming to the top of the hour here, Mike, um, I'm going to hand off the magic, the famous magic wand question to you and, uh, and we'll put any show notes or any resources to follow uh, in, in our, uh, in our package here so that folks can reach out if, uh, if they have any questions, but Mike, uh, take it away on the magic wand. All right. So I know you've done, you've done some magic already, Nick, for, for folks here in the stroke community, but if we were to hand you in, and I think David now in the video, do you have your, the actual magic wand? Oh, nice. There, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're working on it. It's a low budget uh, production here, Nick, but you know, we're, we'll, <laughs> we'll work on it. Um, if we were to hand you a magic wand uh, and you had the ability to redesign the stroke care pathway, you know, what, what would that look like for you? I mean, we talked about a lot of the things already, haven't we? I think we need, you know, yeah. I would love to have better diagnostics, like more focus on like, why is this, what's wrong with this person? Uh, then if we could have better prognostics and we could really try and make some accurate predictions about where people might be so that we, we can kind of target how to treat them a bit better, that would be great. Um, early rehab is really important generally that's focusing on avoiding complications at the moment and then by the time you get people home we need to work out ways of increasing the dose so that's you know that's absolutely critical and I, I don't know exactly what those are at the moment but it might involve hybrid it might involve doing all these other things the thing we haven't talked about though is um so this is all great you know understand what the what the clinical problem is treat people give them big doses of high quality training but at some point, people are going to hit a ceiling. There is going to be a limit to what they can achieve because of they've lost particular parts of the brain or particular bits of white matter, of course, because spinal tract being you know, really important in the upper limb. And so the other, the other thing that the kind of neuroscience world is interested in is this concept of repair. So repair doesn't mean make, like filling in the hole, but it means getting people back towards a more normal pattern of behavior. And it seems that that is achievable in those first two or three weeks again this is another reason that the plateau word comes up but remember we we've kind of framed that in terms of impairment so behavioral repair getting back towards normal seems to require these underlying biological changes that you see in the very early phase and maybe those go away and maybe maybe behavioral repair is not possible later on i don't know but we could just have a much better understanding about those processes and have some tools that we're able to do repair. I mean, I don't think we quite know what we mean by repair, but it involves plasticity. It involves doing things at the level of the cortex, probably at the level of the brainstem nuclei, probably at the level of the spinal cord as well when it comes to the motor system. Then I think that's also going to be really, really that, that's the sort of thing that could be truly transformative. The doing the dose thing is something that we kind of know already, but we just, it's a resource issue, not a neuroscience issue. That's true. And I know that's something that you're also working on. Is it the arm lab that, that we didn't really touch on that is kind of some of the more neuroscience specific, like brainstem stuff that you're doing? Yeah. So uh, arm yeah. Labs is a collaboration between me and my friend and colleague, uh, Sven Bessman. So we have uh, some overlapping interests. And so we decided to kind of bring our labs together so that they could, that the students could learn from each other. So we're, you know, and we're trying to make the focus of a lot of the work, the upper limb program. So 
making sure the patients who come into that program are also available to participate in research studies, whether it's something to do with brain stimulation and looking at current modeling to see whether, you know, where the current goes, or looking at the, the balance between corticospinal tract and reticular spinal tract in particular people, or EG or structural imaging markers or kinematics of movement. So we're interested in all of those things and we're trying to trying to use the, the upper limb as the resource for that. Interesting, interesting. Um, you know, it sounds like you should build a, um, get a resort out in, in London. So stroke survivors from all over could, could kind of tap into this opportunity. I mean, just, I mean, finally, the, the other, because the other thing is we've talked, you know, we talked about the clinical side, we've talked about the neuroscience side, but of course, like fixing people after stroke or getting, you know, help promoting their recovery is not just going to be a biomedical problem. You know, we also need to be engaging with engineers, computer scientists, you know, designers. I mean, I've just come off a call with people from the Bartlett uh, UCL School of Architecture, thinking about how you design environments within which people, uh, their recovery can be promoted. So I think we, you know, there are so many smart people around that, you know, we really need to tap into those people because recovery from stroke and brain injury is probably the hardest problem in clinical neuroscience. You know, we really need the smartest, the cleverest, the best people in all of those disciplines to come to come and focus on this problem. You know, that's that's how big and how challenging it is, but also how exciting it is. This should be this is where all the smart people should be wanting to work. Yeah, well, well said, Nick. And, and certainly stroke recovery takes is going to take does take a team. Um, and it was, what's the best way for folks to reach out? You seem to be pretty, pretty um, active on Twitter. Is there. Is there a best way to, and just uh, wrapping up, is there a best way for folks to reach out to you? Sure, I, my, my email's out there. It's, I think it's pretty easy to find uh, or, you know, I don't, yeah, direct messaging on Twitter, I guess. I don't look at those so often, but. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we definitely have your email, so we'll, we'll pop that in the show notes. But yeah, it's been a pleasure. Um, thank you again for, for your time today. And hopefully we could we could do this again soon because I think there's a lot more we could, we could dive into. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, sir.